My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Lots of people reaching out about digging the new episodes of Transmissions, uh, so we thought it might be fun to share one from the archives. We've been doing the show for, for quite a few years now, and uh, it hasn't always been as frequent as it is these days, but uh, there's lots of cool stuff in the archives. And this is one that Timothy Showalter of Strand of Oaks, who uh, I have spoke with for uh, the podcast and Aquarium Drunkard, uh, he told me this is one of his favorites. It was one that I recorded with Hal Gelb of Giant Sand, Steve Wynn of the Dream Syndicate, and Robin Hitchcock at Hoko Fest, um, which is uh, takes place in Tucson, Arizona, at the legendary Hotel Congress, where KXCI, the local community radio there, has a a studio there where the talented Bridget Thum was kind enough to record my roundtable conversation with these three guys. Um, you know, they, they sort of, they share, you know, kind of similar paths through scenes and the industry, but they diverge too, um, all while sort of maintaining sort of a psychedelic and experimental approach, um, um, to sort of traditional songcraft and blues and folk and country idioms. Uh, anyway, uh, it was really one of the, the coolest talks that I've recorded for Transmissions, and we thought it might be fun to share. We spoke in August of 2018, uh, the before times, and I've really been missing the studio there at Hotel Congress and just uh, haven't been able to get down to Tucson for a proper Tucson weekend. Um, uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that soon. Anyway, uh, we hope you enjoy this one from the vaults. I'm Jason Woodbury, I write and host transmissions. Andrew Horton edits our audio, graphic design by Sarah Goldstein, video media created by Jonathan Mark Walls, and our executive producer and main man is Justin Gage. Find us on Patreon if you want to support our strange conversations for these strange times, past and present. It was well, very lovely. Well, you guys, thanks for hello. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for hanging out. This is the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. We're recording in uh, the studios of KXCI, Tucson's Community Radio, and we're very appreciative. And I'm here with Steve Wynn of the Dream Syndicate, Hal Gelb of Giant Sand, and Robin Hitchcock of Robin Hitchcock and Soft that's, Boys. That's and yeah. Don't. It's fine. I'm just me now. <laughs> it's it's been so now. long ago. Yeah. Jesus. Well, I really appreciate you guys hanging out. Uh, we're here. It's Hoko Fest. You're all playing tonight. Um, and I want to start off by asking, I don't imagine this is the first time you've shared the stage together, right? If you guys, if you guys been mm. crossing each other's paths no. for, for a while? Actually, the same night. We have maybe, a, we did here in this, in this building one time, not long ago. About six, seven years ago, we actually, uh, the mm. three of us and Victoria Williams and, and um, right. Steve's you, wife, Linda... I can't remember. 
It's I'm entering in that phase. The the breezy foothills of dementia. <laughs> I thought like somewhere oh, yeah. in Italy, maybe once, but maybe not. Yeah, I think it was in Italy too. No. Oh, did we do something? Oh, you mean Strada Blue? You mean Strada Blue? Must be that. That yeah. Yes, I do remember. Yeah. In Medigliano. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I remember wandering around with you and Linda. We so we must have done. Mm. We were so. there at the same time, not not one show together. I don't mm, think, but no. we did. Okay. Okay. So we yes, we have clustered. Yeah. So we've verified we have done things together. You've yeah. done things yeah. together. So how did <laughs> how did you guys hear? <laughs> how and about when did you guys first hear of each other's music? I mean, everybody's been putting out records for a long time now. I I uh, heard about Steve through Dan Stewart in the early '80s, but mm. I didn't meet Steve until 1986 when we both played Roskilde Fest in Denmark, and Robin, my uh, my first wife Paula Brown was a huge fan of the Soft Boys, and she caught she was playing bass for the Go Go's at the time, and she caught wind of you being at the Roosevelt Hotel, and we went over and said hello to you by the pool. Is that nineteen eighty seven? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yes, yes. See? Okay, that's an an I heard of Steve through many sources, although I don't think we met until this century. Uh, yeah, but I, you yeah. know, I I knew the Dream Syndicate, and I knew my old tour manager tour managed you, and yeah. you were, you know, it's a lot of the similar tendrils, similar rat runs, friends so. and bandmates and commons, Peter and Scott and stuff like that. Mm. Well, right. But, so, so, and I, I and my similar thing, yeah, the how thing. But you're wrong. The first time was we were making Danny and Dusty at a mm. place called Control Center Control in Hollywood, Center. and That's, he dropped by yeah. briefly, and it's kind of like, oh, and now I'm putting a face to this guy Dan mentioned from Tucson. And Control Center was where we made our first, our first yeah. two records and Reiner's first record. It was, and it was Danny Stewart's girlfriend who turned us on to that place, Susie Wren. That's right. That's that connection there. So that's, but then Ross killed it. But I was also, I was a big Soft Boys fan. There, like I told Rob this before, back at, when I was working in record stores in late seventies, early eighties in L.A. and they would, would force people to buy those records and it didn't take much forcing, but they, but they, I was really yeah, dug those records. That's when we didn't meet each other for a long time after that. Um, I didn't get to LA till '85, yeah. I think. And yeah. the Soft Boys did. We played in New York in 1980. That was our our only venture over here. But um, yeah, gosh. Were you aware though of what was going on, sort of in America, in terms of the, I guess Tucson and and LA, the West Coast sort of thing going on? Um, you mean you mean around the time of the Dream Syndicate yeah. Rain Parade? Three o'clock, the Bangles. I must have been by about by about eighty four. Um, right. An REM who were uh, 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 who were the first ones to get really popular, um, mm -hmm. and I think I think news reached reached my ears about about eighty four, probably. Yeah, it's interesting for me to try to figure out what the sort of scene was in America in terms of. I guess alternative rock, although it wasn't called alternative at first. Was right, it? I always had different names. We went yeah. college, college rock. rock. College rock was a big one. Progressive uh, rock. Yeah, yeah. Postmodern. Wait, yeah. Did, album did, oriented <laughs> rock. Well, that was did, different. That was that was foreigner. I said, did people did <laughs> that people was the really 70s. did people really call it progressive rock? Yeah, for a minute. I well, mean, we, it we, is really it is progressive rock, but it's not the same yeah, thing as that, I guess prog rock. That was the end. Of, no, it was the end of the seventies. It was album oriented rock. That was like you know tracks that weren't singles sure and then i remember the term progressive for a minute and then we went into 
indie. In Britain, it was indie. I mean, yeah. once it, had, not long after punk and everything, all those things that. Didn't you get there the post-punk the in, thing? There was the indie charts, basically. So people like me would never get in the main charts, but you know, I'm, you might make number 26 in the NME indie chart or something. Yeah. Sure. So that was... So does, um, yeah. does, you know, does it feel f- like, how involved were any of you in punk rock proper? Was it pretty much something, that, is that where everybody started? And when yeah. did it start to feel like there was a split happening? Or did it feel like there was a split happening? My first band was a punk band, but I wasn't the singer or the writer. I was just, it was called The Stains. Where was that? Uh, it was out of uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh, Stains from wow. Scranton? <laughs> yeah. Wow. What we, sort of stuff did you play? Well, it was all covers, except for If I Only Had a Brain from The Wizard of Oz. We played it at breakneck speed. Right. <laughs> what were the other covers? Uh, Dead Boys, Ramones, hmm? Pistols. Punky stuff. Yeah, and the yeah. lead singer tried to sound just like... Mm, Johnny Rotten, you yeah. Know, even he sounded British for Pennsylvanian, and uh, and I, I noticed just, that in quite a lot, of the yeah. sort of Black Flag. A lot of those people had a British sound because they all listened to Brit punk. Brit punk. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll tell you something. I mean, I was living in Cal- L- California. I mean, I'm from LA, and I went to school in a city called Davis, so near San Francisco. So I then, and like I say, California punk rock was terrible. I mean, I know you could look back now and say maybe no, you're right. you know, X, X were, were great, but that's for the tail end of that era. X of were course. great, but really, it's like compared to New York, where you know obviously it's great, and, yeah. and, and London obviously great. California punk rock was the most posy, lame. I'll yeah. stand by that too. The Avengers were an okay <laughs> band, but otherwise, oh my god! Well, don't get me started on the Dead Kennedys, but you know, but the, the, the <laughs> I saw their first two shows and it was awful. Yeah. You know, if I want to see Marcel Marceau, you know, in front of a bad punk rock guitarist <laughs> but you know but we're but gonna it, get in trouble for this yeah 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 i know i know i, I like to but the, the reality is like it's, it wasn't that happening so when when i had played in new wave bands or wherever you want to call or play those clubs but when i moved to la from my college days back in 1980 there wasn't much going on and you know it's funny to look back and i'm sure we've all thought about this but how you know now years will zip by in a blip and there's so much information but in 1980 and 81 it seemed like an eternity of really, this period was hard to find good bands. Yeah. And so, you know, for someone like me who was looking to play music but getting disenfranchised because, oh my God, I'm 20 and I'm really old <laughs> and I should be giving this up right now. Right. And which I was feeling like, to find music I liked, I would have to search really hard so I'd find, oh, a soft boy single, that's really great, or a DB's record, or mm-hmm. the Feelies, or you know, you'd you'd find those, the Orange Juice, or, or or the Fall, or the few bands that at that point were kind of speaking to me, like okay, they're not you know, they're not playing, I don't know, kind of a didactic punk rock like Black Flag, who I liked a lot, but but it was that couldn't relate to that. Sure, I wasn't going to be Henry Rollins or, or Greg Ginn, you know, and I could look look at you know ska bands or or flock of seagulls for god's sake you know with you all these things it was hard to find something you say that's kind of like what i'm into you know and if you were into the velvet underground you were one of 10 people in your city who were into them and it was like a, so it was really right. like a secret code was spoken that i think gave birth to indie scene and you know and like i say robin is a big part of our little rosetta stone our way of kind of like look looking for clues those were one of the things that we all found in our various cities um mm-hmm. the, that's nice. I mean, but we, the Soft Boys, which was my first band uh, that recorded, we were very unpunky. We happened at the same time as punk, but we had harmonies and guitar solos, and we were trying to be proficient. Um, 
we we what we had in common with the the punks was that we made it snappy you know the songs sure. were, the songs were 3 minute songs but we were much more into basically echoing 60s pop um yeah. and there was a whole there was a lot of people who kind of came through that new wave door who were really into into that same thing but they had to kind of fake punkiness for six months or so so mm. people like squeeze and xtc and even elvis costello kind of got in under that using mm. that passport but sure. then they turned out to basically be second generation beatles like like we were we right. just made no bones about i made no attempt to disguise my love of john lennon you know and that was kind of uncool for the brits in 1970 Eight. The, the Beatles had only just gone. People weren't ready for a Beatle revival. But, but what we carried in, and I think what Steve and people picked up on, was that we were the Beatles and the Birds, and um, uh, the other guys were into the Beach Boys as well. I was huge into Sid Barrett and Beefheart. They all begin with B, and the Belbert Underground, obviously. Right. And, uh, but, you know, it was all just... There was so much good stuff that had disappeared... Yeah. Uh, and what you had in its place were things like ELO, which is, of course, now massively cool. But <laughs> well, sure. And, um, and our role, or my role, was I felt was to bring all that, the sensibility of 1966, 67, before it all got too stoned and meandery and all that, when it was snappy, when sure. people were the right side of their drugs, you know, and they... I just wanted to bring that back into music in the late 70s and although although the soft boys didn't do that well we did help push that and other people picked up on it I think but you also you, you were playing it like like a strict revivalist and I think that's kind of what made it exciting because you had you know, because we all had came, real songs we all came from punk rock yeah. I think we all wanted more of that I think that maybe I'm speaking, speaking for all three of us but I know from my age I turned 17 in 1977 and that was like you know when people talk about roots, that's my roots, not sure. you know, not not George Jones. My roots is like the Ramones and the Voidoids. So, I want. I was looking for bands that love the Beatles or the Who or the Kinks as much as I do, but still have punk rock. And when I heard the Soft Boys, I said, "Oh yeah, these guys are playing with a little bit of irreverence and noise and dirt, and that kind of speaks to me." So if, if they would have been just pure pop revivalists, I might have liked it, but I might have also forgotten about it. And the same thing with the L.A. bands, like the Paisley Underground bands, like the Bangles and the Dream Syndicate, and and the Rain Parade and Three O'clock or Salvation Army, we were all we all liked our '60s records, but we also cut our teeth on punk rock, and you could hear it sure. at least on those early records. And we got lumped into that cluster, the the but, Paisley Underground sort yeah, of thing. But we were never a part of it. John Sand did. Yeah, you're Paisley least adjacent. In, were you? Were in, you? Is it just? Be, were you not a part of it because you were out here, or did you maybe feel a little bit musically uh, dis distant from it? Both. It was. Yeah. It, they because in London, where our first albums came out in london they it was convenient it, you know but when you look at this it's all a matter of perspective geographical perspective so when the further where you get the closer together we all look <laughs> sure but <laughs> yeah. here and robin from your your yeah. angle it might have seemed like these were two groups that were maybe but green on, green on red though were who bridged rightfully yeah because they were because dan had gone out the surfers, with an E, went out to L.A. Yeah. And we went, giant sandworms went out to the Lower East Side of New York. And when we got to New York, because um, I thought that's where all the great guitar bands were, you know, like 
Fair enough. television and Patti Smith group and Ramones and and we got out there and we got out there too late. We got out there in 1981 and there was no guitars. Yeah. There was a band called Certain Generals. That was it. And there was 99 records in the West Side, but the sound of the day was literally the sound of tainted love synthesizers mm. yeah and the yeah. the, the casio and the crack of the artificial snare with lots of reverb so we spent a year there but it was really tough we're in what they call alphabet city on avenue b and third street we'd play it was easy to play cbgb's and snafu and a7 and all those letters you were based they're all letters sna fu and a7 and cbgb and and we lived in Alphabet City. I'd never made that correlation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we were... And these guys, surfers, went out to Los Angeles where this guitar renaissance renaissance was evolving. Yeah, just led by, primarily, I think, by the Dream Syndicate. Sure. And and green surfers became green on red in that minute. Yeah. But back here in Tucson, just for historical sake... This place was deemed and and literally remote. All the touring bands would stop in Phoenix. Nobody would come here. Right. Oh, yeah. And the few that did were bands like the Alley Cats and X and the Blasters, and they became very important to us. And there was there was a little place downtown here that I missed called Pearl's Hurricane, where Billy Settlemeyer played with his and Dave's Sager with his their band called the Pedestrians and, and this post punk rock scene was just emerging here in the desert seventy nine eighty and they were a lot of really young kids and uh, rebellious and at least sonic nature and we couldn't get enough music we couldn't find there was no radio station KXCI hadn't existed yet and even when they did exist in eighty three they weren't um, they weren't playing all this new music. They, they, it was always a, too much of a uh, variety. Sure. So there was nobody, there was a guy in town named Jonathan L., hmm. John Rosen, who had a music paper, and he hmm. eventually had an hour show once a week. He still has a show. He's living in Berlin now, Lopsided World of Jonathan L. And he would play the only new music on the radio we would hear, I think it was Monday nights for yeah. an hour. Yeah. And other than that, there was a little tiny store across from the co-op called The Record Room where Joanne Tamaraz and a guy who called himself Ramon uh, were together. And if you got down there too late, you couldn't hear the New Germs record because the two copies were gone. Right. But Which wasn't much to hear anyway because those records are pretty bad too. But, <laughs> but the idea of that band was great. Shots fired this entire interview. We're just <laughs> taking, but, up, taking all the punks hey, down a peg. <laughs> after 60, we can make these conclusions. Exactly. <laughs> Anyhow, so that was it. We'd hang out at the record room. Make even, history. Eventually, yeah. Tumbleweeds yeah. was the only little crappy place that would allow us to play. And that's how it, the scene started the beginning, simply... And the bottom line is making the music that we couldn't buy. Right. And that's what that's it. Right. Yeah. That's that, what that was, gave us, the, yeah. or at least this town, its sound from everybody because we didn't have enough information yeah. and we couldn't copy anybody. Sure. Sure. And you'd, 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 you'd look for signals for any way you could. You know, like say I, I was a DJ and worked in record stores. So I gave me a little bit of a, I could find certain things, but 
wasn't like now where you can find anything anytime, which is great or not great, however you want to look at that. But it, but you would take any nugget of information you could from anywhere, and you know things like the New York Rocker, New York Rocker magazine, which oh, I would, yeah. which I would get. And that, I look in there and I say, whoa, so and so like the Soft Boys, or whatever, or like you know um, the only ones is playing New York. They're not coming to L.A., but they're playing there. So signs of life, you know, there yeah. is, you know, beaming sure. down from outer space. It was more things. of a treasure hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and that was fun. So, you know, it's funny to think back now that all these things were happening around the same time. You know, Robin was starting his solo career. The Giant Sam were doing the earliest things. We were starting out all around the country. And REM was here and Sonic Youth was there. And we, we knew about each other, but we weren't, you know, didn't know a whole lot. Sure. Until you go to town and somebody would tell you something or take you down to the local bar or record store and say, well, check this out. It was exciting, and you had to kind of forge your own way. There were no rules, for better or worse. It seems like a luxury now to actually not have that amount of information. <laughs> right. You know, like you said, <laughs> making the music that you can't buy, like you'd, you'd have to make an approximation of what you think these people might be playing. It was the know. pioneering um, spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where you, actually, you have yeah. to thread your own clothing. There was some. There's something yes. to the fact. I mean, I remember it's, you know, I'm... A little bit younger than you guys but i mean i remember reading reviews before i could pull up a streaming service and hear what the band sounded like mm-hmm. i would read reviews and imagine what the band sounded like oh, and there great. was something that was really exciting mm-hmm. about that yes. and then half the times you'd get the record and it didn't sound as cool mm-hmm. as you imagined but that's like humans yeah mm-hmm. well right, right mm-hmm. exactly they look so beautiful <laughs> and then they open their mouth and you get to know them yeah yeah <laughs> So, yeah, although sometimes people who look quite ugly can actually say beautiful things, so it can work both ways. Sure. Well, yeah. sure. Um, I know what you mean, yeah. So, so as you he guys... He the elder here. <laughs> I'm a senior the dude. Well, so you guys all start putting out records. You're putting out independent records. And then eventually, in the, in the 90s, everybody was signed to a major label at, at one point, right? Mm. Yeah. 80s more, but yeah, from... Uh, more yeah. 80s? For me, for me. Nin- sure. 90s for me. Yeah, yeah. God, yeah, Eight- 87 to 99, I, I was on major labels. So, so what started to happen at that point? Uh, individually, I mean, we're talking about a span of a couple of years here, but, but all of a sudden, you know, big labels were interested in what was going on. Uh, what, what happened? How did, how did they start putting their ear to the ground to hear stuff like that? I mean, I think one thing that there was, there was, we were talking about this earlier, we did another chat, like we are, we are now the, the three right. wise men coming down from the mountain with, the, the, with our tablets, you know, but, but yeah. we, have, we have to put but, this interview out first so nobody accuses us of copying exactly. that one. But one thing we talk, talk about there is like, we the, don't like the, the sort of now versus, now versus then kind of thing, you know, and, and um, you know, now you can make music as often as you want and do all kinds of things, but the one thing that was happening back then is because of the way the channel of labels and all that, you couldn't make music that often, and that was a frustrating thing, for me anyway, I didn't, I didn't like that. Sure. And, um, for us, the whole major label process was frustrating because I think in the 80s at least, and it changed a little in the 90s, which was good, but in the 80s, the idea was like that, that you would um, want to, you had, you had to appeal to everybody. It was like your, your only idea of success if you're on a label like that is to break through to the whole world, not to find your little corner. And I can say for the Dream Snake, an example, because we made, an, made our second album, Medicine Show, for A&M, and, and it got a good response. We toured a lot, and we were pretty excited to make a new record right away. And... Um, I remember going into, I was sort of managing the band myself at the time, which is a pretty weird thing to do, but that's the way it was. And I went into the, the head of A&R, the head of the band management band for the label at A&M, and I said, look, um, I know you want us to make more demos and kind of like, you know, fine tune the next record, but we have a good live following and I'd rather just kind of 
make a record and appeal to our, say, 50,000 people and go out there and tour a lot. I think it'd be great. And he said, and this is a direct quote, he said, we're not in the business of selling records to 50,000 people. <laughs> if you want to go, you can go. He said, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. And that was that. We, we oh. you know, they paid us a sum to leave. We took it happily, and that was that. But, I mean, it shocked me because in my mind, it was the most natural thing in the world to say that we have fans and we'll build that, those fans by playing lots of shows and, yeah. and making new music. And we're fired up to make new music, and that just was not what you're supposed to do. You're meant to conquer the world or go away. Yeah. Unless you're on a label like SST, which I kind of, I have to say, I mean, all, you know, different records in the 80s can sound dated, but everybody made their 80s records, you know, with the sure. gated snare drum and all of that. But my favorite sounding 80s records are, for the most part, the Husker Du records. Yeah. Because they made them really cheap and really fast, and they don't sound dated. Do they not have that uh, snare drum you can land a plane on? Exactly. So, oh, <laughs> yeah. <God>. yeah. <laughs> Just a big roaring buzz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so the point, the point I'm making is, the, in a way, the best thing that could have happened back then is to be flying under the radar. Sure. Which, my lessons for flying under the radar, the thing that, the reason why I'm still doing this for a living is how. Uh, when I, when I, when I, when I um, turned about 31, 32, I was still in that major label type mentality of like, well, I guess you shoot for the brass ring every time and eventually there are no brass rings to shoot for and you go home and you know get a <laughs> consolation prize. And and I'm, and Hal was doing the thing that we've all kind of learned to do. He was touring Europe a lot and making lots of records and they were great and he was playing big cities but small towns and going comfortably into the radar. And I said, tell me, oh great one, how do I do this? <laughs> and he kind of helped me out, found me a, a yeah. label in Germany and showed me the way and it changed everything. I was like, right. Playing music and making records and doing shows for the sake of doing shows and making records and writing songs, just because yeah. you love doing it yeah. and want to find the other people out there who want to hear that, and it was a lightning bolt. Now it's now everybody does that. Now it's everybody. You know, if you you can make any kind of music and as weird as you want, but that was a revelation. You don't have to sell to everybody. Just have fun, do what you do, push yourself, and maybe people will be along for the ride. It's blue collar. Blue collar <laughs> is that? Is that what? What was your creative philosophy in those days? I mean, was it just keep making stuff and see what happens? Well, again, back here was uh, it was so f infuriating to figure out how to get out of town with this with your sound, right? And even the studios here made it sound um, wrong. I remember it back then, dated or or just just the way they went about recording. Sure. Um, we tried to do this record, the first record we made, uh, I think it was Westwood Studios, and they were they were the most successful studio in town, and they were probably great, but whatever we had in mind, they weren't right for, and we went in there and did this little EP, white EP that uh, Billy Settlemeyer's dad had paid for, to go for us to go in, and two things happened. One was I tried to record all the ideas in my head. Sure. And as with intent and put them on that record. And it's, it sounded terrible when I heard it later. So that's that. Which record are we talking about? Is this? It's called Giant Sandworms Will Wallow and Roam After the Ruin. Okay. It, it's a little <laughs> whitey peat. Billy's track sounded great. Yeah. With Dave, yeah. Dave Sager. They sound like brilliant pop little masterpieces my stuff sounded i think horrendous with a voice that was a cross between 
David Bromberg and David Byrne. Yeah, David it, Bromberg. I, yeah, do you remember him? Yeah, the, the, two, I, the two Davids, the two that everybody think of when you say David. Well, yeah, I hadn't found. I never wanted to be the singer. Yeah, I yeah. always wanted to be a player. Sure. And and I and then when after that I just started allowing happenstance to rule the day instead of my own ideas, and I would be able to work with crazy things that would come into play immediately and improvise those pieces and utilize them yeah you know ability from your disability sure anyhow so when we finally went to that studio control center thanks to Susie and we recorded in a day and a half with Winston Winston Watson yeah right. who mm-hmm. we're playing with tonight wow when did you first play with Winston well the giant sandworms first we went to Lower East Side in 81 because we had gotten as popular as we could here and it was pretty popular we were living off of music here for we'd make back then yeah was we Winston went, in the band back then no back then was um, Billy Settlemeyer played drums so this is before the worms dropped off yeah Right. So we're got, still giant sandworms. Billy, yeah, who put out right. a great record a couple of years ago. Ironically, uh, with uh, previously the youngest member of Giant, of Sand, giant Sand, now Sand. Gabriel Sullivan producing, who just happened to stumble upon Billy about five, six years ago yeah, yeah. and made this incredible record. And and I heard it on when we were on tour with Giant Sand. I said, what? And then I said, "That's a, that was a, yeah. And, Win- and Winston, for listeners who don't know, has played with... Uh, Bob Dylan, uh, he's played with... Uh, Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper. Warren Zevon, a whole bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. Right. But he, the giant sandworms went to Lower Side, came back, and then and then we took on Scott Garber for a while. Reiner was in Giant Sandworms in the very beginning. Him and I started the band. Mm-hmm. He found Billy. Billy brought Dave, and that's how that started in 1979, 1980. And then in 1981, he didn't want to go to New York, so the three of us went and... Reiner was older than us. He was five years older than me, and I was like f- three or four years older than my band. Then we came back, got Scott Garber, and then we were going to try it in L.A., and the band broke up right before. And and sensibly so, Billy and Dave didn't want to leave town again because it was, it was a hard year in Lower East Side. When we sure. More, more sure of a, yeah, back so where did God. you get? Yeah, it was more of a war zone. Where did Winston appear then? So this is the thing. I didn't want to. I was so pent up and feeling like I'm getting older. I'm like 24 now, and I still haven't made a record. And and um, so we had this date at Madame Wong's in L.A., and I didn't want to give it up. And I said, I'm going no matter what. Uh, who's with me? <laughs> and the new guy, Scott, said, I'll go. And Billy and Dave stayed home, and. Back then, it was hard to get in touch with people. Yeah. But we were able to track down Winston, who we heard was living out there. And he said he would sit in with us without rehearsal. And we played Madame Wong's. And we had such a great time. It was explosive. It was just like all this energy pent up. And just and, and also the vibe in L.A. was very conducive to guitars. Yeah. It, was, yeah, it was a good scene there for, for yeah. right that time. And you could feel it. Yeah. We didn't know anything, but you could feel when it. When was and this, what, 84 or something? 82, I think. 82. Yeah. So, 82, oh. 83, and then... 84 is when I met you, I remember that, so... 
So and, that's and, where the guitars were lurking. Yeah, because they were all Britain out in was LA. Um, like you were talking about New York. You know, it was that was synthesizer land. Mm, yeah, and the guitars didn't really weren't really acceptable until REM appeared yeah. in '84. So there was a, sort but, of an um, American influence. That was yeah, which mm. then um, was good for me. It kind of relegitimized what I was doing. But Winston is a really good guy to not rehearse with. I've done some mm -hmm. amazing sessions with him. He's yeah, just, he's explosive. He was perfect for um, Dylan, really. You know, yeah. he's just, it's all there. You really don't need to run through things. And I'm really looking forward to seeing him tonight. So, yeah. so, so he's a, a kind of a connective thread between you guys. I was talking with Steve right before we started recording, though. Um, so is John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. He's worked <laughs> with, with all of you, right? Oh, that is, that is the one thread. I mean, us, us just a little well, bit. John, I only met him through Robin. Right. Um, and then he would sit you, in I sometimes. haven't seen him for ages, actually. I kind of lost him in the divorce. But, oh. um, but uh, <laughs> as, as happens in these things. So I, I have no idea. But I did see a lot of him when I lived in West London. Sure. And, and he I've, seemed I've to have an ear. He played on our last record, which, which was which was not nice, kind of kind of exciting. And, well, I, I thought but that I know him through through Robin initially. The, you know, the, as oh, I was running okay. through the connective threads, it seemed kind of wild to me that a member of Led Zeppelin had sort of worked his way and kind of been around all of you guys. And it seemed almost as if that was that was interesting to me because well, you, you talk had, about big '70s bands, that's about as big he, as it gets. You had Robert man, Plant yeah. embracing Reiner, exactly, mm. right, early mm -hmm. on. So, and all those guys seem to keep their uh, their ear pretty close to the ground in terms of checking out new stuff. I mean, Robert Plant still proselytizes for bands like Low, or you know, all sorts, yeah, all sorts of stuff, which is a, a pretty interesting thing. He and JPJ are both sort of connected to Americana in some way. I right. Think. Um, right. Not that anyone wants to be Americana. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, I'm Americana now. You're I've Americana. Ten, well, yeah. Ten years ago, I was alt country. Then I was alternative, which I always thought was a terrible term. I mean, yeah, hey, Gramps, play some alternative. You know, well, <laughs> what's that going to sound like? Sit on the porch and play some alternative. You guys and have then, all been lumped into those and, different sounds. Uh, yeah. Right? And then prior to that, I was indie. I mean, I was never. But you know, it's just that every time a category comes along. I actually, psychedelic is probably about as close to defining me as you can get. Yeah, and every yeah. so often I will, you know, every three records I put out, I do some backwards guitar on mm -hmm. and things to <laughs> keep it on brand. Yeah. But uh, it's funny, they're all, and actually I was thinking about something that probably links all three of us is that we're all a bit indefinable. You can only describe us in terms of ourselves. Like, um, sure. If you want to know what how Gelb is like, you have to go and see how Gelb and listen to him. And you know, you want to check out Steve Wynn. Well, he writes great songs, but you actually should probably just hear. You know, there isn't a category. Right. Uh, we we all kind of appeared at the same. You know, through the same independent channels, and we've been quite good at surfing the post record industry industry um, because none of us also were dependent on major labels to mm -hmm. they, they've all given us I know blood supply at certain points but none of us were made by a label we all kind of got going and then kind of flirted with them or got kicked off or, every you know. time with the three times we were on a major label each time right when the record was done recording we used we had their huge budget to record, and we were making a, our mess with marble instead of mud for that minute. <laughs> and and right when the record was going to come out, the first time on, it was Glum, 
for with um, uh, Imago, Imago was the label. Yeah. And then the second one was Chore of Enchantment on V2. And then this last V2, one was on God. Heartbreak Pass with uh, New West, which was still, they still thought they were, they operated like a major. Every time the record was going to come out right before, and I'm talking seconds before, there was a change in the president of the label. Sure. And the <laughs> record did not come out. And it was as if the winds right of this fate. is not meant to be yeah i said yeah. no no we have this other is, plans for you stay away from this world so i mean i mean that, i think that, that we do have, have in common is that we've between the three of us made a lot of records we've been doing it for a long time we and i i, I don't i don't know what our the, our number is you know whatever i think i think i'm minus near, near, nearly 30 at this point and probably we're all in that sort of zone and i will say 16. pretty honestly they're all pretty good like like i don't think in any of our cases we, any of us have veered too far off the path. We've had different things we got into for a bit or different people we'd work with and different types of things or collaborators or different settings. We've kind of all kept at what we think is good music or the right thing for us at the moment with with everything we're, we have. So it wasn't ever like we were trying to get over in somewhere, trying to be something we weren't. And I think that's, that's you know, we've all been joking today during they how you pass a certain age and you become sort of like people just listen to what you say so it's it's um sage advice is yeah how one said well this but you been, know yeah. I, I think i think we kind of have you know earned uh, I, I used to call it the legend card you get at a certain point you get the legend card and then you kind of you know you're a lifetime member but you do that by just doing what you you know showing you some kind of integrity in what you're doing if you if you fall off the mark or fall short various times it's not because you were selling out in somewhere it's just because you thought that was what you wanted to do at that moment and i think that's served us all pretty well so now i mean i've i've heard robin's last, last i think last record the the the, the, epon- the eponymous one the one yeah and yeah that, and that's a great record and you know and, and I, I keep up on the house stuff and it's always great and it's like it's consistently there so it, i think that people come to our shows because they honestly think they're going to get a certain something that they might not get elsewhere in a very authentic way I and have that's a, nice i i Something came to mind, though. Normally, your crowd, I think, uh, is plus and minus seven years of your own age. Sure. Le- less so now for us. And, and if I can be that bold. Well, and it occurred to me on this last tour, we re-recorded our um, first album, and that a third to a half of our possible listening and viewing audience who'd come to the shows are either dead or incapacitated <laughs> right right so that's oh you need to cultivate younger friends <laughs> yeah i was i mean yeah. my my lot are all actually we're all about 20 years younger than me yeah and now so now they're in their they're in their mid 40s they're looking yeah. at 50 yeah and yeah. um that's all annie there you know oh. it, that's but the thing but I, I mean you've had younger people in your shows a lot i do get yeah. younger people i also get people who bring their parents along as yeah. i bought my dad a birthday concert for your show a yeah. ticket for your show's a birthday yeah. present i get people who also bring their children and the kids grow up yeah. and um, but i do it i happens. do maintain yeah. a, a blood supply of it's good to have you need people to see you out a living you know museum my piece. social circle are much younger than me and I, I should have a good bunch of people at my funeral um, <laughs> well I, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that you guys all you guys all continue to make I think very vital sounding records uh, the last dream syndicate record was 
I mean, it ripped. It was fantastic. Uh, this new Giant Sand record, where you're revisiting your your first record, again sounds incredibly energized, and and so did your most recent record. No, nobody seems to have lost um, the spark that you guys had in well, the we beginning. We were never pop singers, you know. Also, most people have never heard of us. Well, <laughs> um, you know, they're not. It can only not, get We've better. all failed, totally failed to capture the public imagination, and you could argue that we've never tried to. Um, we've simply, we're all people who've pleased ourselves. Yeah. We've also probably all grown up thinking of making albums rather than singles. Still. So, you know, you know um, it's not like, oh my God, I, mm. I just that, haven't had a hit. You know, it, just, yeah, well, it, it doesn't even, uh, because, because we're children of the album generation, you know, we are, like I was saying, Sergeant Pepper, Led Zeppelin, all I, that I, stuff, you know. I'm sure it's, I'm sure you guys still do this. Do you still make records and think in terms of, Last song, side one, first yeah, song, side yeah. two. I can't get out of there. There's no, well, I'll never be able to break that. That type. And well, thing. now I don't think it's about pleasing, anyway, right. pleasing ourselves per se. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like saying we're singer songwriters, sure, which doesn't fit either because nobody really sings our songs and. Well, you write uh, them at least. <laughs> yeah, we, and we, I don't even really not sing. Singer to songwriters. Begin with. Yeah. What are we though? Yeah. Songsters. 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 Yeah. Well, so in 2018, and that's a good, but that's, that's a, a good place to be, right? But, I mean, in terms of thinking, in terms of albums. But uh, the thing that you're you're not pleasing yourself, but what you're doing is you're feeding the beast, that so it doesn't eat away at you. There's this thing, like if you don't do it and keep that thing, that in, inner imp, satisfied, the duende, then uh, it, you start to rot, and in that. Yeah. Since I think at least that's that's why I've made way too many albums. Well, it pleases. I mean, it pleases you, I guess, just not to be devoured by your inner. And there's so the wisdom we're keeping, again. We're keeping our imps happy or fed. Yeah. We're throwing lumps of uncooked yeah. steak to our demons. <laughs> yeah, and that we and the, and that produces music. My <laughs> imp, my <laughs> imp lied. My imp they lied. They are so gluttonous. It, what did it lie about? No, it was implied. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> That's fantastic, mm. Steve. Does this sound about right to you? Does this sound <laughs> is 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 what you're doing uh, to some degree just necessary for you? Do you feel like? Yeah, you're saying there's that. I like what I do. Yeah, I just like it. Yeah, I, li I like I like writing songs. I like recording songs. I like playing music. I like touring. I like I like going to new cities and playing for new people. I like. I think more than anything for me. This, sure, there's the demon. Sure, there's the you know the tortured artist. Sure, there's the there's the I got something to say. Damn it! Sure, there is the this is my job. But I think I like you know I, I've thought this more and more lately too. Is that we're all all of us like to figure things out. We all like to kind of right. be faced with a situation and then find our way out of it. And I know for me, I, music yeah. is the way I do it. I cannot fix a drain. I can't. I can't change change the oil on a car. I can't do a lot of me things. neither. I, I, I bet and, you can, and, but and, you would do it the same way you. Take oh, a and guitar you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to have my car after that. But the thing is, but the thing is, I think I, I really enjoy still being on a stage and something happens different. The drummer plays a slightly different beat, or the guitar sing different. And I think, what do I do now? You know, yeah. what's gonna? Where do I go from here? And oh, the audience tonight they're being a little quiet for this kind of thing, but they're digging that. And this room is you know going a certain way. And I like that every single night thing of having to find my way out of a jam in yeah. a studio, in a song. In but a, in but a, that's also what a solo is. Hmm. You right, get yourself in dangerous too. territory, and you hope you can find your way back into the song again. Yeah, but I would say, I say it's like so supposed to improvisation. There is, the, there is the beast, there is the demon, there is the muse, and all that. But for me, it's just kind of like 
I just enjoy this. It's that imp again, improvisation. Right. It's, an, it's <laughs> yeah, the imp of improvisation. You put the imp in improvisation. Good afternoon, Mr. Provert. <laughs> there we go. Mr. Revisation. <laughs> Why, Mr. Revisation? Good of you to drop in. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for hanging out and talking. I, I know you guys all got to start getting ready to play a show tonight. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's been really fantastic having each one of you here to talk about um, really a whole life playing music. It's fantastic. Thanks, thank thanks for your courage, uh, thanks Jason. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. It's always great. Thanks to everybody at KXCI as well. It's a huge, uh, huge yeah. honor, and we really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Whoops. Here's a little song about the Golden Fleece. Here's a little song about the Golden Fleece. I'm a all love and no peace. Sometimes my heart runs to the police Sometimes they take my heart to the police I'm a all love and no peace Dropped a little bomb about an hour ago I dropped a little bomb about an hour ago